guys in the, the framework here. So let me read Ezekiel 37, this really remarkable vision that Ezekiel has. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you. And you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So Israel is depicted in its place of exile and being these cultural outsiders now in Babylon as this dried up, dead, slain army, basically. Um, And you know, even as I think about right now in the kind of cultural moment American Christians are in, there's lots of people, really in the West in general, saying that Christianity has kind of had its time in the sun, had a good run for about 2,000 years there, and now it's time to adopt a worldview that works for the 21st century, right? And it's interesting because these voices are kind of coming at us, and the idea is almost like, Christians are experiencing this like totally unique moment. They've never had a a moment like this where cultural forces were pushing them to make a decision and whether it may not be better to kind of just abandon faith and move on to a new worldview that works for the, the present moment. But in reality, the people of God have been here so many times. And I think it's only as we lose touch with history, not just church history, but even biblical history, that we realize this is nothing new. We've been here so many times. I mean, the ancient Israelites were the God, our God, uh, they called Yahweh or Yavah. And many would have assumed that Yahweh worship would have died out. It, it, had a, it had a good run. It had its time in the sun, several thousand years actually. 
But now it's time to adopt a worldview that works for the 6th century B.C. Of course, that didn't happen, right? And we found ourselves in these moments time and time again where the cultural pressures are such that we feel that we're at some kind of unique moment, right? We might get passed by. There's this um, quote I like by Lee Beach. He says this, Exile is a doubt-producing experience. It leads us to wonder why we should stick with the identity that led us into exile and whether it may not be better to choose a new identity to live by. For ancient Israel, doubt that Yahweh was the true God was addressed by the prophets and psalmists not as an abstract theory, but as an act of pastoral care. It was a response to the allure of Babylonian opulence and religious hegemony. So here's what I want us to feel in this moment. Don't let the cultural forces right now convince you that Christianity is at some utterly unique crossroad, right? Will the churches and the people of God's cultural influence wax and wane at times? Yes, and it always has. Will people walk away from the faith? Yes, and they always have. Will the gates of hell prevail against the church of Jesus Christ? No, and they never will. Hear me, Christianity isn't going anywhere. I feel like that needs to be said in this hour. There's this kind of messaging that like, it's just this outmoded worldview, and we've got to get something that works for our time. And trust me, guys, we've been here before. The people of God have been here many times. And I think it's as we understand that, that we gain the wisdom for this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, right? So I love verses like verse 11 in our passage today because the Bible is filled with scriptures like this where the people of God are given tools in God's heart and even hearing God's voice over what our experience is like when we feel like we're now on the outside looking in in society. And it's, I like this verse because God knows exactly what, it, what the Israelites are feeling in exile. And this is how they feel. Well, God says to Ezekiel, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And that, that's this vision that Ezekiel just saw that I read. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. So let me kind of... Uh, explain a little bit of context about the way ancient kingdoms and empires understood the rise and fall of kingdoms and empires. So when an invading army came against another nation, uh, an invading army and the defending army met usually in some kind of decisive battle at the time, usually came down to one big battle. Um, There was the battle on the ground between the, the physical armies But then, more importantly, people believe, there was the battle in the heavenlies between the gods of the invading nation and the gods, or the chief god of the invading nation and the chief god of the defending nation. And those gods would do combat with each other in the heavenlies, and really, the battle on the ground was a reflection of the outcome of the battle in the heavenlies. That's what was believed, right? So, a victorious nation meant a victorious god, a defeated nation meant a defeated god. And if your nation won, your God was proved to be superior. And if your nation was defeated, then you just kind of accepted the fact that our God's inferior, right? And that's just kind of like the way the game was played and how people understood, like, 
world, world, world events and the changes and rises and falling of empires, which is why the Hebrew people and the Hebrew prophets of the exile must have sounded so strange because they continue to talk about God, about Yahweh, with this exalted language of his glory and his greatness in the midst of exile. They're not playing by the rules of the nations around them. And we have these moments like Daniel, who is a contemporary of Ezekiel. And this is how Daniel talks about Yahweh around Babylonians. Not just like in his own little subculture with Jewish exiles. This is how he talks about God around Babylonians. He's the king of heaven. He's the Lord of heaven. He's the God of heaven. He's the most high God. Now, hear me. The Babylonians would have rolled their eyes at this little prophet from this defeated territory amidst the vast Babylonian empire. But apparently Daniel and Ezekiel and these guys felt no need to apologize, no need to try to shrink God's greatness to match Israel's weak position in society, right? And and I feel like the people of, this is always the challenge to God's people whenever they find themselves in a society where they don't have power, where they don't have political influence, or it's waning or whatever it may be, that do we feel the need to kind of tone down our language of God's greatness? Do we feel the need to kind of just be a little hesitant to champion the glory of God, right? Because the reality is this. God's greatness isn't tied to Christians' strength or weakness in America. It's not tied to the effectiveness of an evangelical voting block. It's not tied to any of these things we might want to tie it to, and the world might actually tie it to. And it's actually really important. How we talk about God in a place of exile has always been very important. Are we declaring his greatness unapologetically, no matter what the forces in society may be pushing on us? And I think it's as we lean into this, we begin to see really how God's, I think God smiles. I mean, it's easy for us to talk about how powerful our God is when we have lots of political power and lots of political influence to exert in a nation. It's a different thing when Daniel's and Ezekiel's around Babylonians just unapologetically testify to God's glory. I just want to encourage, actually, can we just take a second? Can we just take a second? I just want to, just, you don't need to stand, you don't need to shout. Let's just, let's just tell God he's beautiful. Can we do that right now in this place? God, you are glorious, Lord. You are great. You are awesome, God. We just declare your majesty in this country, Lord. You stand alone, God. Your glory isn't tied to whatever power we have, Lord. We just worship you, Lord. God, I just want to, I just want to encourage you guys. Like, that's who we are. Uh, that's who God is, apart from whatever political power we have. And the reality is this: is that Christians are increasingly feeling like cultural exiles in this country, right? As the pressures mount against us, as oftentimes Christians are made to be the scapegoats, particularly evangelical Christians, for so much. And Uh, Scott was telling me a story the other day about um, a podcaster named Colin Hansen who was speaking at a church. No, sorry, he was preaching at a speaking at a college uh, up in the Northeast. And 
is just a, a bunch of secular college kids in the room, and he asks them, uh, name, just think of a church that you know the name of. It could be any church, one you've seen, driven past, you heard about. Um, and the only church that any of them could name was Westboro Baptist Church, the entire room full of college students, right, which is that church known for its inflammatory comments, particularly against the LGBTQ community, and they have a bunch of other just hateful platforms that is kind of part of who they are. And I think that's really interesting, right? That, I mean, there's so many incredible churches in the world doing awesome things, speaking gospel life, and this is the form of cultural exile that we're experiencing in the way the culture is framing us, right? To where in an entire room of college students, the only church they can name is Westboro Baptist Church, which of course is by design, right? I mean, the media really only cares about us when our flaws are on display, for the most part, right? Um, and this is how the people of God begin to start feeling cut off in society. Um, Ezekiel 37, 11, again, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. And I think there's probably different ways that they felt cut off. These are a few that kind of came to my mind. They felt cut off from God. Even though, by the way, they actually weren't cut off from God, um, if you think of the prophet who records the most supernatural encounters and visions, um, it was actually Ezekiel, at least by recording. Um, and so Ezekiel, by the way, who did not live in Jerusalem when he was having all this, Ezekiel of, the, of Babylon, which, by the way, is kind of encouraging to me that um, just because your country largely ignores your God doesn't mean he's any less accessible to you, doesn't mean his greatness is, is any limited. Um, Ezekiel is having lots of encounters with God in exile and in Babylon. But in fact, that was actually one of Ezekiel's life messages. He opens up the book, and Pastor Bart preached on it in chapter 1, basically saying God's presence is mobile. He's not limited to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. He's with you in Babylon. He can bring his presence anywhere. That was actually one of Ezekiel's life messages. But many of the exiles still probably did feel cut off from God. They felt cut off from political power. They felt cut off from being a major player in shaping culture. And this, to me, brings up a very serious question, kind of for the evangelical church in America. And I feel like this question can be asked in different ways. Here's kind of how I'm going to ask the question. If the world is in many ways comprised of groups and factions vying for power, some obtaining it and others not getting it. And if when the world and unbelievers uh, look at evangelical American Christians, they mostly see another group um, jockeying uh, to establish and protect their own moral and civil agenda, then how are we distinguishing ourselves from the world? Right? So if on the political landscape, Christians in this country mostly present themselves as just another group jockeying for power, then we're implicitly telling the world that we have nothing to offer you but law. Albeit God's law, someone might say. But the only problem is that, according to the Apostle Paul, people die under God's law. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. I like how Don Carson kind of wades into these waters. 
He says, the lust for power very often reflects our desire to control others, even when we think this is for their good. And sometimes it is, though not nearly as often as we'd like to think. The desire to control people is very difficult to distinguish from a lack of love of neighbor. It is almost impossible to disentangle from our desire to play God, which is a breach of the first commandment. No small sin, by the way. The more power we exercise over others and the less power others have over us, the more we judge ourselves to be free, right? That, by the way, is how the world defines freedom, more or less, right? Um, I have freedom if I'm the one in power, and I have less freedom if others have more power over me. But let me ask you this. Is that really the way the Bible defines ultimate freedom? You having worldly power. I think you all know the answer is no, right? Um, Now, there's a very real fear in... um, I think it's a very real fear that Christians are feeling right now um, over a loss of political power, a real battle over political power. Um, and th- I think Christians feel this no matter they're, whether they're uh, kind of right-leaning or left-leaning in many ways. And um, I think many Christians feel safer by desperately trying to exert whatever political muscle we have left in this country. Um, and there's very real fears over what America could become uh, and I just want to say, I think a lot of those fears are leg- legitimate um, in what America seems to be becoming. Um, so I think some of the progress we're making as a nation socially is, is probably in a good direction, and I think some of it is in a really scary direction. And I'm not going to get into that right now, um, but I get that. And I think there's also some fears over what future treatment of Christians could be like in this country. You know, especially in in 10, 20 years, uh, it may not be easy to love Jesus in 10, 20 years in this country. Um, And so I think some of these fears are realistic. I think some of these are kind of feeding a growing spirit of fear in the church. And I think it's in moments like these that the people of God need to be reminding the people of God what Paul told Timothy, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. but He's given us a spirit of, of what? power and love and a sound mind or self-control. I mean, God actually has given us power, right? So let's not shrink back from that. It is about being a powerful people. I mean, this is in many ways what Ezekiel 37 is about. God raising us up and enlisting you in an army, right? Um, But this is an army of love, and it's an army that actually has self-restraint, has self-control, which is, I think a lot of Christians are out of control, (laughs) And the way they're responding to things. Um, so this is something I think we can, we can lean into, we can press into. But this army that we're enlisted in, that's raised up by the Spirit of God, it, it doesn't win or lose based on how much worldly power we can collect and hold on to. Right? And I think, y'all know this. We know this. I, I think we know this, right? Um, But really believing it, I think, changes the game, our our lenses, our perspective. Um, Ezekiel 37, in kind of its near fulfillment, is about the resurrection of God's people nationally and placing them back in their homeland, as we read in verse 14. Which, by the way, is a promise God made good on. Seventy years after the exile, God brings them back into the land through Cyrus of Persia. Those who want to go back can go back. 
Um, and then I think for Christians today, when we look at this resurrection of the people of God, we can't help but think of the return of Christ, when Christ will raise those who have died in him, and he brings us into this new creation together. Um, Lee Beach says this, this, that's the new creation, is the culmination of the biblical story, the story that we're all a part of, that began with the exile of the original couple from the land that God created as their true home. You know, the exile has kind of happened to the people of God and ended for the people of God throughout history. But the final exile that in some ways we're still in is we haven't yet gotten Eden back. And that's what God will do when he brings the new creation. And until then, until then, we are at war. We re- I mean, I've been feeling this more and more. I actually had like a, get a drink of water real quick. I actually had like a come to Jesus moment a few months ago that I desperately needed. Jordan, was at, Jordan and Adeline were actually at the beach with um, some of her friends. And I was just like in my room. It was after midnight one night. Uh, and I had been doing the bachelor thing for a few days. And, and I just like, I don't know. Like the Holy Spirit just started highlighting the depths to which secularism and secular values had just gotten its roots in my soul. And how humanistic ideas and worldly lenses were like, without even knowing it, the way I was operating in the world. And just like on my knees in tears, just repenting, like desperately saying, God, please have mercy on me. Take these lenses away. Give me your vision. And I just had this like acute sense, like we are at war. Like, we're not just doing this Christian thing. Like, there is a very real war and battle for the souls of men and women. There always have been, and there always will be, until God brings about the new creation, and the exile finally and ultimately ends. And the extent to which we are asleep, the extent to which we can't see this and feel this, really matters. I I don't know how to say it more seriously than that. Um... Now, like, I don't, I wouldn't say, like, the church um, in Israel, the exile, are, like, exactly the same. I mean, I, I don't think, like, the church in America is literally slain and our bones are rotting. Some of y'all may think it's that bad. I don't know. I don't think it's quite that bad. But I do think that the church in America feels weak. I feel like there's a lethargy on us. Um, and I think this weakness that we feel has only been heightened by the pandemic in the way that many of us have just been driven apart through social distancing because of it. Um, And it's in moments like these when God comes and he says things like this to us, to you. Son of man, can these bones live? Now, this vision, interestingly, I just want to put this on screen because I think it's important. This vision is about the people of God rising together But interestingly, it begins with a question posed to an individual, right? Which is often how God works. And then he speaks to individuals within community, and then the community together becomes an army. And this is, I think, what God does. He comes to you. He says, daughter of man, son of man, can these bones live? Can the death and the dead that you see in your life, can that 
come to life? Can the hopeless around you experience hope? Can the cut off find their home in God? Which in many ways is a question to your faith level, isn't it? Right? God's essentially saying, like, do you believe this can happen? And interestingly, and kind of encouragingly, Ezekiel isn't fired up, right? I mean, he doesn't say, heck yeah, God, yeah, these bones can live. Let's do this right now. Ezekiel goes, oh, Lord God, you know. She's like, totally weak. I mean, I think it's pretty weak. Ezekiel's like, I guess, I mean, I don't know, God. You know, maybe this could happen. Um, and I think this is where we are a lot of the times, right? And uh, it's in moments like these in Scripture that I, I always think of uh, Luke 17, where Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Lord, increase our faith, right? Um, and essentially, what they're, it's not even a question, right? They're not saying, like, will you increase our faith? Would you think about increasing our faith? They're like, give us faith, Jesus. I mean, essentially, what they're asking is for this, like, faith injection. They want Jesus just to come with his power and just raise their faith level. And Jesus' response is, really interesting, because they put it on Jesus, right? They say, you give us faith. And Jesus actually puts it back on them, and he says, if someone has faith the size of a mustard seed, then he could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus actually puts it back on them. So they ask Jesus, we want more faith. We want an increase in faith. And Jesus says, okay, so the solution to your desire for an increase of faith is this. Exercise the faith you have. Whatever it is. However small it is. And, and this, what I love about Luke 17 is apparently all faith is small faith, according to Jesus, right? So a mustard seed was the smallest seed in Palestine. And Jesus is like, so apparently the requisite faith to throw mulberry trees into the ocean is mustard seed-sized faith. <laughs> so if, and I don't know any people throwing mulberry trees in oceans. Maybe you do. If you do, like, hook me up with them. I have heard some pretty crazy stories of things happening. But apparently, uh, it's not, like, we might think the kind of faith that throws elephant, like, sorry, the kind of faith that throws Trees into the ocean has got to be like elephant-sized faith or castle-sized faith or some big object-sized faith. Apparently, that's mustard seed-sized faith. So according to Jesus, whenever he looks out at humanity and looks at your faith level, it's all little, right? It's all like Jesus only sees little faith, right? Because mustard seed-sized faith, I can't say it's a tongue twister for me, um, is apparently can do crazy, crazy things that we hardly ever see. So apparently, all human faith is really small. That should be super encouraging to you. We're talking about degrees of smallness, <laughs> right? That's what Jesus is basically saying. So, so don't come to the Lord and say, God, my faith is little. It's all little. It's all little. It's all mustard seed size or under, according to Jesus, right? So the question is not, do you have little faith? The question is, are you exercising your little faith? Because that's what births faith. That's what births more faith, right? And that's what partners with God in the world. And that's why I'm excited about this week of prayer, to be honest, because we have an opportunity this week to gather corporately and gather our collective little faith and ask God to do things in the world. 
ask God to, to speak life over death, hope into hopelessness, right? Genesis 2-7, such a beautiful passage. And in many ways, Ezekiel 37 is a commentary on this beginning passage in the Bible. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. So kind of like Ezekiel 37, Adam is this kind of fully formed human, as it were, but he doesn't have the, the spirit of God. He doesn't have the breath of God. And God breathes into Adam, and he becomes this living being as God originally intended for us to be in this world. And we all need the spirit of God breathes into us. That sense, we're all atoms, right? Ezekiel 37 kind of deviates from the Genesis 2-7 pattern in a way, right? Because in this vision, God doesn't tell Ezekiel, okay, Ezekiel, here's this valley of dry bones. I want you to just sit over here and watch me do my Genesis 2-7 thing, right? Actually, God says, come on over. I want you to, I want you to partner with me in this. And God says to Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy. I want you to speak life over this death and hope over this hopelessness. God invites him into that. So you need God to breathe his spirit into you, for he's the only acting agent. And in that sense, we're all Adam. And God invites you to partner with his desire to speak life and his spirit over people. And in that sense, we're all Ezekiel. I love how Ezekiel sees this, this ancient desire in the heart of God that he had back in Eden. It's still his desire in Ezekiel 37. It's still God's desire in the New Testament in countless places to fill, his, to fill human flesh with his spirit. That, I mean, that is God's ancient, timeless desire, that human flesh would be filled with his spirit. I was... Uh, here on Friday afternoon, entering my sermon into the uh, PowerPoint and, and getting ready. And um, there was a thunderstorm. I don't know if you all got caught in that on Friday afternoon. And it's just like the skies opened up here. And there was like lightning crashing everywhere. The lights flashed a few times here in the room. And in the midst of this thunderstorm, I like look out the double doors and I see a car pull up. And um, I, I look out there and I kind of creep up to the doors there. And I'm like... Um, watching this guy who's probably like in his like 40s um, and it, he kind of gets out, walks around his car. He's having some kind of car problems in the midst of this like crazy thunderstorm. And, um, and he goes back into his car, sits down, puts his hands on the steering wheel, looks up, and at the top of his lungs just starts cussing God out. And I'm just listening to him. I mean, everything, just letting it go. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> just like watching this happen right out the front doors. And um, it was actually a little unnerving because he was so angry at God. Uh, actually, at the time, I didn't even know it was God he was angry at. I thought, it, I not, wasn't sure what was going on. So I was like, man, I don't have time to be bothered by poor distressed souls right now. I got a sermon to prepare. <laughs> um, but obviously, I, I went out and um, and I was like, hey, man, like, are you okay? Can I help you? And he's like, yeah, I, I need some help. And I was like, well, what's up? He's like, I ran out of gas. 
um, I was like, okay, well, let me go run down the hill, get you some gas, and get you on your way. And he goes, that'd be great. Man, I, I just got to say, lately my, my life just feels like it's just falling apart, and God is like the number one subject of my anger and my, my anger and rage right now. Um, and the fact that, like, in the middle of a thunderstorm, I ran out of gas in front of a church was just like the last straw for me. And I said, I hear you, man. I'm actually inside preparing a sermon right now um, about how God fills us with his spirit when we feel dead inside. And he said, I need that so bad. So I went, out, I went and got him some gas and came back, um, and we just talked for a while about the, our desperate need for God's spirit to fill us. Um, he's a Christian. Um, but this is, I feel like, I feel like I'm Adam most of the time. And in some moments like that, maybe I'm Ezekiel. And I feel like that's, what, that's the balance that God has us in. Um, and I just want to encourage us as a people to get in touch with our desperate need for God's spirit to fill us. Guys, we were at war. I mean, I want us to feel that. We are at war for the souls of men and women. And they need God. They need God's spirit. Um, I want to go ahead and invite the team up and give you guys just a chance to just dial in with the Lord and just ask God, Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me again. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, and I just invite you to stand if you'd like to. Stay seated if you'd like to as well. God, we need you. We need your spirit, Lord. God, would you come and fill us? Would you come and speak hope, Lord? I ask for this week of prayer we have coming up, 6 a.m. each day, Lord. I ask that you would be filled with your spirit, God. I ask that our hearts would soar in prayer and we take our collective little faiths and you would do something glorious in our midst, Lord. God, we just say right now from our hearts, we need you. We need you. Your spirit in us is our only hope. So we just say again, come, fill us, Lord. In Jesus' name.